KFBS. Radio 2. Sitra with Christopher Lee. Oh, Chris, Chris Whitehead, thank you very much for the news and the BFBS news team. And you, you are very welcome at today's Sitrep Roundtable. In this hour, the Americans, as we hear, are taking over Musakala. What does all that mean? Iraq, the killing goes on, but that's OK. It's a democracy, isn't it? Afghanistan, why the Foreign Office thinks President Karzai's lost it. Israel, why Jerusalem's not negotiable. Northern Ireland, why the dissidents won't buy Stormont's champagne moment. The coroner has spoken, but is it too simple to blame Gordon Brown? Cyberspace, but who's listening in the MOD? And can the government really gag the media? And who said, glad I'm not vice president, I'd be bored with nothing to do? You got it. Well, with me in the rep studio here the Director of the Military Sciences Programme at the Royal United Services Institute for Defence and Security Studies, Michael Codner, the former Daily Mail Diplomatic Editor, John Dickey, and from University College London, Dr Martin McCauley. Uh, Michael Codner, Ms Carla, the Americans taking over, what does it mean? Well, it, as a result of the surge, um, the American surge in particular, there are a great deal more American troops. Uh, Britain had responsibility for Helmand province, and uh, now there are more Americans. It makes a lot of sense to give them um, a, a piece of the major problem in Afghanistan, which is Helmand. Uh, Musakala, uh, a town and region which they are taking over, uh, Musakala has been in recent months uh, something of a success story. One can't go further than that. Uh, and so it's not the biggest problem. Uh, it's not that the British are surrendering, the UK is surrendering um, a, a problem that the Americans have to take over because we can't deal with it. And what it does mean, of course, is that um, the British troops can be... Um, be uh, reallocated to other areas, in particular Sangin, where there is a bigger problem. Right now, I can I can see the cynical headline sometimes here. Uh, you know, rather like Basra. You know, the British couldn't hack it. They'll say the Americans have to move in. So, not so. Uh, I'd say absolutely not so. The problem in Helmand has been that we've had a a considerably bigger problem than we can cope with. We've got um, by far the biggest contribution alongside the United States from any other nation. Um, and uh, the, one of the British problems is the sort of syndrome of uh, tell us what to do, sir, and by God, we will do it. And that's where we were. And now there are more American troops. There are more British troops too. But it makes absolute sense with this is the major problem region to have a much bigger <coughs> American. There is, of course, in the south in the, in the, um, in the current um, offensive um, American Marines uh, are leading a large part of that as right. well. John Dickey, public opinion, they like to hear the Americans are taking over some of the role because there's a sense of, can we come home? That's well, not here, that, is it? There's also the need for, for a greater uh, sense of urgency in dealing with the remnants of the Taliban. And also it would be a good thing if they could get a bit closer to Sangin, where the casualties have been mounting at a very high rate in the last 10 days. Yeah. Uh, Martin McCauley, um, all this makes good military sense. The difficulty is explaining it. Yes, and uh, the military had not done that, and the government hadn't done it either, uh, because uh, the man in the street, the woman in the street, uh, when they see the dead coming back, they say, why? And when they look at Karzai, we look at the government and so on, and uh, say, what are they doing? We're, we're making the sacrifices, so therefore uh, the government has a real battle on its hand here to sell the military is doing a marvellous job, but a, a, a difficult political job. Right. John Dickey, your man, the Secretary of State, David Miliband, in 
uh, yesterday in, at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, saying, listen, we're doing the military bit. We're doing the surge. You, President Karzai, you're not doing the political surge. You've really got to get on with it. Normally I don't rank him among the, the top foreign secretaries of the last two decades, but this was a very thoughtful speech. It was something more than the usual list of uh, sandbags uh, linked together. He was making it terribly clear that the Afghans, and particularly Karzai, had to apply the same sense of commitment, sense of intensity in, in action on the political reconstruction and uh, development front as the military were doing with the surge. But he also indicated for the first time, in my view, a, a vision. He talked about uh, stability within uh, the range of two to five years. This wasn't the, the, the long haul that the military had been talking about, sometimes decades to go. This was a man talking about if you got enough energy into the political settlement, not just internally, but externally. The neighbours had to be involved. And therefore, if you could achieve that in the sense of getting the more schools open, more girls being educated, more security run by the Afghans in the next year, then within two to five years, you might see results. Okay. Um, as a political offensive, I can hear the, the, the guns firing. Here in the UK, it continues. We've had the former Chief of the Defence Staff, Admiral Lord Boyce, um, who said that Prime Minister Brown was disingenuous uh, with uh, his explanations. I think what he really meant was a bit economical with the truth. Uh, General Dannett says similar things. So does General Lord Guthrie. Um, he wants the PM to, um, to admit that he was short, he didn't come up with the money. Well, the Prime Minister said, that's not fair. And he said it to Kate Sherbo today on British Forces Broadcasting. Well, I think they're wrong, and I've got to be honest, I, I, I don't think it is appropriate uh, uh, for people to criticise us for not providing what we did provide, which was urgent operations. Because they said, you, they said you were economical with the truth. It, personally, that must be irksome for you. I, I think they're wrong, because the urgent operational requirements that were asked for by our forces were always met. Uh, they weren't talking about that, they were talking about long-term underfunding. I, I'm saying that, first of all, then, the urgent operational requirements were met, uh, the expenditure in Iraq is $8 billion above the budget. In Afghanistan, it's already it's $9 billion above the budget. The defence budget was rising in real terms uh, every year. Uh, contrary to the 1990s, when the defence budget was cut by 30% in real terms uh, over that uh, period, the defence budget has continued to rise every year. Um, that was the Prime Minister talking to Kate Gerber earlier today. Um, Michael Codner, I mean, he's doing wiggly amp stuff there, isn't he, with, 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 with the figures? Well, absolutely, and, and um, Kate's point that uh, it's the long-term funding which was the problem, not the um, urgent operational requirements, is, is absolutely spot on. I mean, the irony is that the 1998 Strategic Defence Review envisaged a, the scenario for the really big British expeditionary operation was to be one in the Gulf. Urgent operational requirements are there to tune your forces for your particular environment. This was actually the environment that was envisaged in 1998. And so the... Uh, the urgent operational requirements should have been fairly minimal. Um, on top of that, of course, there was the problem of 
um, of of the long term funding of the of the strategic defence review plan, and part of that's defence inflation. Part of that was the expectation that all our acquisition reforms, with smart acquisition, were going to make up the difference. We were going to save enough money to be able to build the big programmes and do everything else. And it's that problem uh, of underfunding. Yes, uh, the. Um, defence budget did increase uh, over inflation, but it didn't decrease over increase over defence inflation, which is a good three percent higher than inflation, and so it was effectively reducing in terms of capabilities. But these guys, you know, like um, like Admiral Boyce, they don't just get up and do this for fun, do they? I mean, there is there is an underlying message saying the chiefs of staff the existing chiefs of staff, really must not get up and criticise the Prime Minister. They can't do that, except in private, if they exercise their right to go and visit him. Um, so there is something much deeper here and more disturbing, isn't it? This is, a, this is almost a personal attack. Well, I'd certainly listen to Lord Boyce. Um, um, he was the chief defence staff at the time, and he's someone who has not been particularly service-focused well, service in any of his recent statements and remarks. I think Lord Guthrie is rather different. Lord Guthrie, you get a very army, 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 and um, that's been going on for a long time. Yeah. OK, look, but, let's forget the politics but, for the moment. Let's get to the day-to-day -day story in Afghanistan. Uh, on the line from the Middle East Institute in Washington, the former State Department man, Dr. Marvin Weinbaum. Um, Marvin, I was listening uh, or to a press conference with um, Afghan uh, President Karzai in Pakistan. He said, we don't want any proxy wars going on in Afghanistan. What would he mean by that? Well, he's responding to the fact that the Pakistanis are so taken up with the idea that uh, somehow India has a beachhead inside Afghanistan and is going to provide a, a security threat, uh, and already, they feel, does create a security threat. So what he's saying, in effect, is I'm not going to let India uh, threaten Pakistan. Yeah, I heard uh, also yesterday uh, there was the Iranian president, uh, President Ahmadinejad, and he was, predictably, he went to Kabul and he said, well, the Americans are here and they're messing things up. They ought to, ought to leave. But there is this sense, isn't there, that Afghanistan, the, dis the future of Afghanistan will be decided by India, Pakistan, maybe Iran, how much they're fixing things. Um, and that is the long-term future. They've all got a bit of a point, haven't they? Well, they, they do have certainly their own national interests there. Uh, but at the same time, in spite of what Ahmadinejad said, uh, I think the truth is that he, along with all the others, and that includes the Russians uh, and, he, and the Pakistanis as well, really don't want the U.S. and its coalition partners to leave quite yet. Uh, what they'd like them to do is to, is to stabilize the country, uh, because none of those countries really has in its own national interest the return of, a, of the Taliban. Yes, perhaps Pakistan sees the Taliban in some kind of coalition with the government, some, some power sharing as acceptable. But even the Iranians uh, uh, really uh, cannot, uh, cannot really uh, expect that a return to the Taliban is in their interest. Right. When, um, when with a little help probably of the CIA, or so it appears, um, the, the Pakistanis lifted the Taliban number two, uh, Mullah Abdul Ghani uh, uh, Baradar. Um, that might have actually messed up 
quite a lot of the backstairs negotiations that were going on, including the Saudi Arabia's, for some way in which Taliban could come in and discuss things. Um, I seem to think that uh, President Karzai actually wants his get his own hands on Mullah Abdul Ghani Baradar. Well, you know, you have to if you believe it's disruptive, you have to you have to also accept that uh, there was very serious negotiations going on at a high level. Uh, I uh, I have difficulty with that. Uh, knowing what we know about the number two man, he was really the hardest character in that Quetashura. Uh, Mullah Omar is uh, is a bit of a dreamer. This is this is the man who really has led the military operation that, to the extent that anybody has uh, through this period of time. Why at a at this point, when there's no reason to believe that uh, it's a it's a given that the uh, the counterinsurgency is going to work, and they have gotten as far as they have, uh, they would be willing to trade away anything which would represent a compromise. I have difficulty accepting that. Right. Um, U.S. Defense Secretary uh, Robert Gates, he says, you know, the hard fighting lies ahead. And the next target, Kandahar? Why no, Kandahar? Yes, yes. Well, Kandahar is, the, after all, the, uh, the heartland of the Taliban. It's really where, uh, during the 90s, uh, uh, Mullah Omar made his uh, headquarters. Uh, he's from that area. Uh, it, it is the one area which really represents the, the failures that we've had in the last few years in being able to to maintain a presence, because Kandahar was, if you go back five years, a reasonably secure place. Uh, effectively now is outside the control uh, of, the, uh, of the coalition uh, operation, uh, except for the airport, uh, really. So uh, it's absolutely necessary if you're going to win this perception war, and I think this is what it's all about at this point, it's being able to convince the... The, the rank-and-file Taliban, that now the wind is blowing in the other direction, the initiative has shifted, then you've got the possibility of what we call uh, not reconciliation but reintegration of some of these elements, and it may happen very much on a village-by-village, valley-by-valley basis, not as part of a, some grand bargain. Okay, Marvin Vaimore, thank you very much indeed for joining us there from Washington. John Dickey, when I, can I piece this together now? Um, when I hear the political rowing going on in Whitehall, or the squeaks of it anyway, with the Prime Minister talking uh, early on to Kate Sherbrooke, and then I hear Martin Weinborn putting that very, very mm-hmm. quietly together and saying, well, you know, the, the thing may not work. This is going to be a very, very nasty, muddled uh, occasion for some time to come, isn't it? It could be, and Kandahar is a really difficult nut to crack. Uh, for example, there are 140 Canadian casualties killed in, in Kandahar over the last two years. So whatever happens... Are they going to pull out the Canadians, you think? There's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of anxiety in Ottawa about this. There have been you know, debates in the House, and, and the feeling is that why are they bearing such a large percentage of the burden when other members of the alliance, apart from the United States and the UK, are um, confining themselves to training operations. I think something will need to be done to bolster the Canadian presence there and make it seem as if they're not holding it all on their own. 
the fact that the Dutch can't actually, uh, can't agree to continue their presence after September won't help the it Canadians won't help their, make a decision. Uh, it won't help there, and it won't help the recruitment of other people into a more active role uh, in the Kandahar area. Mm. Um, Martin McCauley. I was going to say that uh, if the uh, Dutch pull out and the Canadians pull out, you could see that as a bonus uh, because it will put uh, pressure on Karzai mm. and say to him, look, if you don't get your political act together, then uh, one country after the other will pull out and you'll be left on your own. So therefore, get your act together. Mm. Will uh, it work? Uh, Michael, the, 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 the fascinating thing about Karzai is he always reminds me of being in the same position as, as, as General Musharraf was in Pakistan, in as much that General Musharraf was our, was our guy. He was our boy. And then we, we lost interest in him. We said, no, you can't fix it. You really ought to go. We're now appearing to say the same thing. I'm after we virtually bought President Karzai in office, didn't we? Uh, and an election sort of, uh, sort of helped him stay. There's another election going up in, uh, in, in, in the autumn. Do we want him to stay? Well, there certainly was a time um, um, before the previous election when um, it seemed that, that uh, there was um, a, a lot of um, interest and pressure to have um, a new president and someone who um, was more credible. But uh, that we seem to be past that now. And, um, and Karzai seems to have uh, presented himself um, in a somewhat more positive way. I mean, he was down in Marja, wasn't he? Mm, was it yesterday? For the first time. For the first time. And... Um, uh, uh, I wouldn't say that he was as doomed as we would have thought he was not that long ago. Yeah. Don Martin? But uh, Yukatsa is a pushtun, and mm. the president has to be pushtun. Therefore, you have a very, very small group to choose from. Yeah. And Yukatsa has been an enormous disappointment because he would say, look, I've got, it's a clan society, uh, it's villages, you deal with elders and so on, uh, and uh, the country is vast. The lands of communication are very poor. What do you expect? We can't, I can't modernise this country. I can't turn it into a European or American-style uh, democracy or state. You have to give me time. And uh, uh, we do it differently here. We're, we are Muslims and we are Pushtuns and we have our own ways of doing it. So uh, what your, visit, uh, your vision for Afghanistan is completely different from mine. And, and this is part of the problem. They're, they're talking two languages. OK. Uh, the final question has to be uh, Michael Cogner on this. We've got the politics in the UK, we've got the politics in Kabul, we've got the politics in, in Islamabad, um, and then we've got the military surge. The military surge now chasing, not direction, but part of it pronging out to Kandahar. When, on the assumption we do, when we get Kandahar, then what do we do? Well, I mean, K Kandahar itself will be a major challenge because we're talking about a... A city here, and you can't take a, a sort of um, a Russian approach, um, gory type approach to no. to Kandahar, and it's going to be a very complex operation, and certainly it's going to be one that will I mean, be far bigger than Marja, for example. Absolutely, and one that um, has to be completely American-led, and American um, alongside the Afghans, they'll have to bring them alongside as they have done in the recent operation. But uh, and, and to some extent, that would be a definitive event if you're looking for tipping points. I'm not suggesting it will work, but um, but. Uh, taking Kandahar, as it were, um, would be the sort of um, major milestone which, uh, if one was being very optimistic, could be 
um, the end of the beginning, let's put it that way. Right. Um, but, uh, but um, and, and mopping up to follow. But, um, Martin. There's a problem here because um, the Taliban are Pushtun and Karzai is Pushtun. And therefore, many uh, Pushtuns would say, uh, we're in charge anyway. Karzai plus the American plus the coalition, that's one group of, uh, of Pushtun. But the Taliban, we're all Taliban and we're all Pushtuns together. Uh, and it's our country and so on. And this is an enormous problem. If they, if they were separate, if it was a different ethnic uh, minority, it would be different. It would be an easier war to figure out, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because in Kandahar, how do you how do you proceed? Uh, because everybody's a Pushtun. Okay. Everybody's um, uh, Taliban. Right. Let's move on. Let's let us in fact go to Iraq. I mean, it's not quite twelve months, I suppose, since um, was it April? Not quite twelve months since Twenty Armored Brigade took part in the final handover ceremony. But Iraq really gets a mention today, unless it's bad news or something about the election uh, last weekend's election. Well, the turnout in Iraq's general election. Uh, was 62%. That's of the 19 million eligible voters. Uh, and that's, I think, is despite attacks that killed 38, 40 people. Good, but that's down from 75% who voted in the 2005 elections. Well, that's the arithmetic. What does some of it tell us? The BBC's Hugh Sykes was in uh, Iraq last weekend, and he joins us now. Um, we don't yet know who voted and who didn't vote, um, uh, Hugh, but there is a sense, isn't there, of in spite of those figures, it was a success. Yes, absolutely. And I don't think you should say in spite of those figures, because 62% is higher than the British general election in 2005 and higher than the Obama election in America in 2008. And the December 2005 elections in Iraq were exceptional, 75%, because they were the first truly uh, inclusive parliamentary elections after the ratification of the new constitution for Iraq in October 2005. And these elections in 2005 were not boycotted by the Sunnis. Everybody was gripped with enthusiasm for this first really full example of the new democracy. No result yet this time. A couple of preliminary results have been published uh, this afternoon indicating that Mr. Maliki with his state of law coalition has done quite well in the south. That's not very surprising. In Basra, I spent a lot of time in Basra, a lot of people there said the British were pretty useless. They tried to tackle the militias. They weren't tough enough to begin with. They allowed the militias to develop. Then when the militias, three of them, did develop, they didn't uh, uh, manage to control them or, 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 or get them to reduce and off the streets. The moment the British retreated, which is the Iraqi perspective on it, uh, on what you described as a handover just now, the moment the British left, uh, Mr. Maliki mounted his charge of the night's attack on the militias in Basra. And when I went back there uh, in April last year, while the British were withdrawing stroke retreating, uh, the streets of Basra were completely calm, uh, and it was notable that they were calm without the presence of any British troops there. So it's not surprising he's done well there, but who knows how well he's going to do elsewhere. Well, given the history of the British in Mesopotamia, Iraq, um, it is a pretty... Um, you could become quite despondent, couldn't you, about the reputation that this war has cost uh, the British? Yes, I think so. And also the Americans, there's a huge amount of goodwill towards them and towards America as individuals in, in Iraq. A lot of people aspire to go and live in America, but an enormous amount of contempt for the American government under George Bush and Messrs. Cheney, Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz, and an enormous amount of contempt for, for Tony Blair as well, because many, many people have said to me, look, thanks very much for getting rid of this monster, Saddam. 
uh, who was mostly there as a result of the British installing a, um, a Sunni king in the 1920s and everything else led on from there. A bit like you could argue that Ahmadinejad's only in position uh, because the British supported an American-backed coup against Mossadegh in Iran in 1953 and the history of Iran pretty much began there. Um, but <laughs> Iraqis really don't understand why there was no proper plan for after the invasion. That argument that complaint is repeated over and over and over again. They say, look, it might be getting better now, but you look what you did to us. You got rid of the dictatorship. The dictatorship, how, however awful it was, uh, was um, a system of order. People knew where the red line was. Now nobody knows where the red line is. And for years after the fall of Saddam, there was terrible bloody anarchy. And I, I think the minimum figure for the number of civilians who were killed in Iraq is is a million. Um, and I was told by somebody yesterday, I haven't been able to verify, that there are five million orphans in Iraq, many of them as a result uh, of the chaos that ensued after the British and American invasion occupation. The Roman chronicler, Q, Tacitus, he says, um, we created a wilderness and called it peace. Is that what we did? Um... There is freedom, but there is no security. I don't think you should call Iraq a wilderness. They're astonishingly intelligent, educated, uh, resilient, resourceful, kind, and courteous people. If only the British and the Americans had grasped that fact before they went gung-ho into their invasion in 2003, if only they had enlisted the support of significant numbers of people in Iraq rather than relying on the very dubious testimony of exiles like Ahmad Chalabi saying there were weapons of mass destruction when there weren't. If only there had been some wisdom, and that's not just my personal opinion, that's the opinion of many uh, military, especially Americans there. If only all those things had happened, we wouldn't be where we are now. But if only, I guess, is probably a, a two words that are often applied to bungled history. Hugh Sykes, thank you very much indeed. Um, yes, it's a black picture, isn't it, John? Uh, and it doesn't actually... It doesn't help that image because, I mean, we had somebody in the programme a couple of weeks ago just come back from the Middle East, and, and she said, I am actually surprised. She was cynical, but mm -hmm. she said, I'm actually surprised the fact that the British aren't rated mm -hmm. at all wherever you go in the Gulf. Mm -hmm. I thought it was a brilliant portrait of Hugh Sykes here, and I only wish that David Miliband had been able to hear it because he made some extraordinary claims to the Iraq inquiry. Uh, he talked about the reputation of Britain being increased by the fact of uh, getting rid of uh, Saddam Hussein. He talked about the way that... Uh, uh, the invasion had, had increased the, the standing of the United Nations, as if the United Nations were behind the invasion, which they weren't. Now, this is a, a, a very sad day for the way the uh, conduct of Middle East affairs was carried out by uh, Tony Blair. If he'd only listened to all the Arab experts at the Foreign Office, uh, Arabic-speaking people, they would have been the first to warn of the damage done to the, the standing and reputation of Britain uh, that had been built up over the years. Martin McCauley. Yeah, the, the point is that Tony Blair knew no history, never studied any history, never studied the Middle East or anything over the last thousand years, so therefore he had no grasp. He, he went by his advice, he ignored the Arabists because he had made up his mind. But that's a minor point. But what I found about Hugh Sykes was that he was talking about the past.
the Maliki is the Prime Minister and we're looking to the future and it's going to be a coalition government and the key is how many votes did Maliki get from the Sunni minority if he can win over a significant part of the Sunni we can't we haven't got those figures mm. yet have no we, we haven't got but but that that's one of the keys if he can uh, affect a coalition which draws in the Sunnis because he obviously Shiite and therefore he'll win many Shiite votes mm. that is the key to it and then of course you've got the uh, Kurds in the north mm. And they, are, they can really administer themselves. They're well, also, he's well, got a problem with the ships. Revenues sorted out. They just can't run it all around. But also, he's got to sort out the Iraq National Alliance, which is Shia, mm -hmm. uh, run mainly by the Shias. Listen, um, uh, Michael, sitting in uh, Whitehall, listening to um, lots of military, I mean, not just the UK, but other, other, other nations as well, uh, we're building a picture, aren't we, about um, the value of this sort of action. And I don't mean we'll never go in a coalition with the United States again. Uh, when we come up to deciding a strategic defense review or building a picture for a strategic defense review, it's the sort of thing that we've got to say, we did that sort of, we went into Iraq, we went into Afghanistan, Maybe that is not the future, as General Dannett says, as General Guthrie says, and I'm afraid as the present Chief of the General Staff, uh, David Richards, says. Well, the door was open to regime change type operations very much uh, by Kosovo, which looking back now, although at the time it looked as though it was going to be a disaster, was generally considered to be a great success. And you then have these two subsequent regime change operations, which is not, I think, what was envisaged um, in 1998 um, with the Defence White Paper. And uh, certainly... The argument at the moment is, on the one hand, is this likely to be the future um, for our operations? Or is in the, on the other, is can we build a defence policy and military strategy that somehow can exclude uh, us being embroiled, uh, particularly in small partnerships with the United States or any other partner for that matter, where we are, they are totally dependent on... Um, not totally dependent on us, but where we don't have the option of handing over to other partners because there aren't the partners to hand over to. And uh, the, the continental uh, general's side, as opposed to what you might call the maritime strategic raiding side, the strategic raiding side says, yes, we can still go quick in and quick out. It's just a matter of what choices government makes and let's build a strategy that minimises the choices for the Afghanistan-Iraq type operation. Well, if you ask yourself the question, where is war likely to break out in the next five years? You won't know. You don't know, but my guess would be uh, on, on the probability index, I would put uh, China and India. What, China versus India? Yes, in the north. Uh, about the We're north. not going to get involved there, are we? Precisely. We're not going to get involved but there. But they've had their war there. Yeah, they've had two, but... They've both uh, learned a lesson. Yeah, no, no, no. China is, is rearming that whole area. But uh, if you look at, uh, say, the Middle East, the, conflict, the next conflict will not be about regime change. It'll be about oil mm. and gas. And if you say Saudi Arabia, if there's a coup, there's an Al-Qaeda coup in uh, uh, Riyadh, to remove the royal family, we would have to get involved. The Americans would have to get involved. We would have to get involved. That type of thing, oil and gas in the Middle East, so that would be a material objective rather than a political objective. But 
but our involvement is likely in that case to be alongside quite a large number of other mm. nations, more on the first Gulf War model, mm. in which case, if you end this up... This is the 1991. Yes. If you end up in long-term stabilisation as opposed to occupation, putting it that way, yeah, I mean, the then first we Gulf... can ha- be part of a rule model where we do our best, as we did in Bosnia and, and Kosovo, and then hand over to the Germans or some, yeah. some other reasonably large European nation or other nation who can take over the framework nation responsibilities. We've got to remember, um, because I mean, a lot of people serving today weren't, I can say, weren't even born. Um, mm-hmm. But in fact, no, they weren't even born when we, for the first Gulf War. Um, uh, that was because Saddam went into Kuwait... We went into Kuwait, kicked him back into Iraq, job done. In fact, there was the, the debate at the time is whether or not there was a UN mandate to, go, to continue to Baghdad, to chase him up the road to Baghdad and remove him. And it was Colin Powell, I think, he was ch- uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in, in, in Washington, said, we have no mandate no. to do that. Yes, Nor on his stomach he to do it. He convinced George Bush Sr. George Bush Sr. was emphatic on that. But what I'm saying really here, it, uh, I think it was probably stomach. that They didn't, they didn't but, you know, they'd had their war. They the had Saudi, that pilot the, who talked about a turkey shoot. And yeah. The Saudis said like, that they wouldn't foot the bill if uh, the Americans went to Baghdad. Yeah. And, and the Americans were aware of the huge problem of taking over Iraq that they faced in the second. And, and that was a major consideration. I was, I was teaching in the States mm. at the time, and all the great names came through the Institute um, and, uh, where we were teaching. And uh, the, the issue of how on earth do we solve the Marsh Arab problem, all the remaining problems from the Iran-Iraq war, how, how do we manage all the inter into community problems in yeah. Iraq, all the things that they're facing yes, now. If you look and at they the, thought about it and considered it. If you look at the interventions of George Bush Sr., they're always in the third world, Central America, other little places mm. where you can get involved. But he never got involved in any big mm-hmm. uh, country. That's the difference between him and his son. His son was willing to go anywhere. George Bush Sr. was very, very careful. But he wasn't going by himself either. Right, I want to come back to Iraq, uh, the recent, more recent one. Because this week, Foreign Secretary David Miliband gave evidence to the long-running Chilcot Inquiry, uh, that's the Iraq Inquiry, into why the United Kingdom went to war in 2003, and the conduct of the war and its aftermath. Now, listening, as he's been listening to the whole thing, the BBC's political correspondent, Rob Watson. Um, Rob, there seemed to be a sense that Mr. Miliband uh, was blaming the United Nations for the need for the United States and United Kingdom to go going to war. A bit cockeyed reasoning, wasn't it? I'm not sure that I'd entirely interpret, that, interpret it that way, Christopher, and good afternoon, one and all. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's certainly true that, that he was taking the similar kind of line to, to Gordon Brown, and that is to say one of the reasons why we did Iraq, one of the most important reasons, the thing that he was putting front and centre was this need to uphold UN resolutions and the UN's authority and the idea that a long, 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 long time ago the UN had said, come on Iraq, tell us the truth about weapons of mass destruction, uh, and that it never had. He seemed to think that we came out heroes uh, in, in, in the region. Now, we've just had a discussion here suggesting that that may not quite be true. 
He certainly did seem to be saying that, didn't he? I, I guess, to be fair, I, you know, rereading the transcript of his remarks, I, I mean, he did, he did acknowledge that there would be other people that would take a different view, and you might add in this, at this point in brackets, you betcha, uh, not just the people in the studio, but an awful lot of other people. But he, he was trying to make the case, and look, would you really expect him to say anything else, Christopher, that, right. that no, it hadn't really affected our standing at the UN and our ability to do business there and that it really hadn't affected our relationships with countries in the Middle East. I mean, it is a statement of the obvious to say there are plenty of people that strongly disagree. Yeah, I was also listening to um, Ed Davey, the Liberal Democrat foreign affairs spokesman. He's a, he's a moderate, moderate guy. And, but he was saying that David Miliband, the Foreign Secretary and the Prime Minister Gordon Brown, he said they're on a PR offensive to rewrite the history of the Iraq war. Uh, it's all Labour doublespeak. Isn't that a bit harsh? Well, I, I, guess, I, would put, I, would, I guess I would put it this way, and, and that is that it's pretty obvious to me that Gordon Brown, Jack Straw, David Miliband, I could name a few others, but let's deal with the big names, that they'd obviously thought very long and hard about, I mean, what are we going to say to this inquiry? How are we going to pitch it? How are we going to... What, what, what is it that we want? What is the message we want to come out? And, and it's pretty clear that, uh, unlike Tony Blair, who, who, whose defence of the war was full of kind of passion and relationship with the United States, relating things back to 9-11, the threat of WMD, the, the intelligence, they've all tried to say, well, y you know... <laughs> Could we really have done anything that different? We were, after all, trying to uphold the UN authority. A, a very sort of sombre, sober, kind of, if you like, kind of downbeat defence of it all. But certainly there are going to be allegations that they've been rewriting history. I mean, after all, you would well know, and I'm sure everybody listening would well know, that there is a, a prominent view in the high command that, that Britain basically had a a strategy in Iraq in the 2006 onwards of how on earth do we get out rather than how do we win? Mm. And, of course, Labour have been... The, the Labour witnesses have been disputing that as they have the funding and, and everything else which we know is so controversial. No more Chilcot until after the election, says uh, uh, Sir John Chilcot. So, presumably, no more Tony Blair. No, it doesn't look like it. And, uh, and then that, of course, begs the question, well, will it have much of a political impact? Mm, OK. Uh, who, who comes after? I mean, who's next on, on this list when they do return? Will anybody bother about it? Or have we had the Chilcot show? Well, uh, there'll be a number of real devotees, I think, who will carry on with the Chilcot show. You and I. Unless it, yes, but I think unless it's any big names. But, but I think, that, you know, the, the fascinating thing is sort of sitting back and reflecting on this. I often get asked, well, you know, how do you think the inquiry have been doing? Uh, and it's certainly true that uh, I don't think they're going to be threatening the role of the BBC's more inquisitorial presenters. <laughs> but, the, but the real issue is, you know, it's all about what is the final report. Uh, and one suspects that may be fairly stinging. I mean, that's purely speculation on my, on my behalf. But I, I guess, you know, in terms of the political impact, everybody's probably off the hook because I, I think most people have made up their minds one way or another about the Iraq conflict and the way the government handled it. And it would only be a really stinging report that, wouldn't, that, that might change things. And, well, no one's going to see that until long after the votes have been counted. OK, Rob Watson, thank you very much indeed. Michael Codner, uh, that final report will also contain 
documentation, Absolutely. stuff that we haven't heard. Absolutely. I, I mean, this report, this um, inquiry is very much characterised as, as a historical inquiry and not as a sort of legal interrogation. And, um, and, and any historian uh, would, uh, would treat oral history with... Um, with um, circumspection and we want mm. to test it um, you don't need to interrogate uh, the person you're talking to he will say what he wants to say and you will then test it against documentation etc and there is a huge amount of stuff uh, still to find out about why we committed the types of forces we did uh, possibly against the presumptions of uh, the Ministry of Defence in particular Lord Boyce at a very early stage in that respect. John Dickey. There's also the question of the letters that uh, Tony Blair sent uh, to Bush uh, as a result of their, their Texas Are meeting. they going to come out in documentation? I don't do you think know? they will come out. And it was extraordinary that you had uh, Gordon Brown as a senior member of that cabinet n not being aware of the content of these letters and not think it was important that he should be aware. This sounded to me as an appalling oversight. Yes. Martin. Well, one of the difficulties of the Chilicot inquiry is that the panel, the inquisitorial panel, could not be inquisitorial because they were afraid of being accused of bias. And well, hang on, none of these... No, I mean, Sir Roderick Lyon, a former ambassador in Moscow, who was the private secretary to Lord Carrington, he was doing his best to uh, be inquisitorial, and there was no yeah, question yes, of yes, bias yes. there. Yes, but you can't go... There's a very thin dividing line between by being inquisitorial and having bias, because if you lay in, say, uh, for instance, when Sir Roderick Lyon asked uh, Gordon Brown about uh, whether he knew about the Crawford uh, discussions... I think he asked them three times, and he wouldn't give him an answer. Mm. You needed somebody who would just come in and say, right, yes or no, please. OK, um, I want to move on. Um, John, Joe Biden, the vice president, um, and I must say it now, um, my, oh, you're a very good friend, of course, uh, Sarah Palin. Oh. Um, hang on, <laughs> Sarah Palin said... Uh, she was uh, on the... Uh, hang on, Sarah Palin, I'll have nothing said against the lady, she may be the next president. Um, Sarah Palin said... I wouldn't like to be vice president. I'd be so bored and nothing to do. Joe uh, Biden, the vice president, has lots to do, and he's been doing it this week in Israel. But, I mean, the whole thing is banal, banal isn't it? I mean, Israel has approved the building of 1,600 new homes in East Jerusalem. That is important, and it's something which Joe Biden didn't expect. Not only that, uh, 112... Uh extra units on the West Bank and 3,000 uh, units under construction which were to be covered by the, um, the moratorium on building are now said to be uh, for security reasons, for safety reasons, they've got to continue building. Mm. But They've all said that, haven't they, though? Because yes. it is illegal to build on it. occupied territory. I mean, with George Mitchell, the special envoy of President Obama, trying to get them together, and um, Obama having originally said there must be a freeze on settlement, the gave way on that by having this moratorium. And now, um, with Joe Biden there, uh, seeing Netanyahu, the, the Prime Minister, and, and not saying, look, you must freeze. He said, these proximity talks will go on, there must be no delay. This is a giveaway. Right, I Martin think, McCauley, I think quickly. Trump was right, because Joe Biden has nothing to do, because George Mitchell was there, he failed. Netanyahu went to Washington and told them that uh, there's no deal. So therefore, what was Joe sent there for? 
I think, uh, basically, to be the sacrificial, <laughs> sacrificial lamb because there's no mm. way he'd get anything out because Hamas wouldn't talk to him. OK. Listen, I, something which I was going to mention earlier, but, uh, you know, the coroner was, uh, came out in, um, the other day, was it Warminster, and he said, well, he has misgivings about training and Land Rovers, mm-hmm. etc. Um, the power of the, John, the power of the coroner in British society is quite, quite something, isn't it? It's one of the oldest inquisitorial offices, isn't it? Indeed, and he cannot be silenced or leaned upon. I thought this was a great example of the way the British uh, legal system works, that you can have people calling up witnesses and uh, making deductions that the government cannot ignore. This must be the most difficult question for Gordon Brown to answer, because while he was talking in this vast billion figures, there was a coroner saying the snatch Land Rovers were not there. But we knew, I mean, Michael, we knew all this. There was nothing, I suppose because it was some time ago, the, the, the inquiry into, into the inquest. Um, it didn't actually add anything, except that when you're running up to an election, it's yet another irritant. And coincidence, coincidence, coincidence. Gordon Brown then nips off to Afghanistan and says to the guys, by the way, I'm going to order you some 400 new ones. Uh, it's got to well, be... He said 200. Previously it said mm. 400. Now you can cut the figure in half. It's only 200. Well, you can't get... You can't... I mean, I don't know where you can buy 400 anyway. Mm. I mean, unless Toyota make them. I mean, it's, it's a... It, 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 it isn't. It, it is. It is silly, isn't it? That we, that these stories are grabbed. They become a headline, um, but they're far deeper. Far deeper. Well, yes, indeed. On the particular issue of the Snatch Land Rovers, I mean, that, that particular model has actually been pulled, but there remains the problem of how you take forces through areas where you can't put a very large vehicle. And if it's small, then you're not going to be able to arm it very much. Well, the but, Americans seem to solve it. They replaced the equivalent of the Snatch Land Rover by something that did work. Well, we are, I mean, there are new, new things coming in which mm. are, are better. Snatch Rover Land Rover was not, um, was not a good solution. Good stuff no. in Northern yeah. Ireland. Listen, uh, I want to talk about something which is far, far further away, cyberspace, cyber ops. There is something, sometimes a bewildering leap from soft-skinned Land Rovers, I suppose, to cyberspace. But both are part of this year's defence debate that the next government will have to address, whichever government it is. For the moment, let's think space is top ten subject at the MOD's development concepts and doctrine centre. On the line, Tim Stevens from the Centre of Science and Security Studies at King's College, here in London. Tim, I mean, can we define cyberspace in the military environment, that is? Uh, well, many people have tried um, and many people have failed. Um, but uh, cyberspace essentially is the same in the military environment as it is for the civilian environment. And it's essentially <laughs> those spaces, if we can call them that, uh, created by the connection of people and machines through computer networks, the best known of which is the Internet, of course. And it's a rather broad concept that connects across a wide range of activities, people and places from cell phones to laptops to games consoles to air defense systems to satellites. Um, When we think of it from a military perspective, one of the big debates is whether cyberspace is a a domain similar to land, sea, air, or space. Uh, My view is that cyberspace is not itself a separate domain but cuts across and connects those traditional domains of military action as well as as the realm of human ideas and expression. So it's therefore a much more complex operating environment than just land, sea, air or space on its own. Right. I mean, if we're thinking out to 2040, which um, this is where we're supposed to be thinking now when we start talking about the Strategic Defence uh, Review, yeah. out to 2040, 
MOD seems to have got a handle on this. Whether it's got the resources, one way or another, is another matter altogether, isn't it? Indeed, yeah. Well, what the MOD have said uh, in, in, com- uh, uh, in common with the other operating environments is that cyberspace will be contested, congested, cluttered, connected and constrained, which is obviously an incredibly complex operating environment. And the alliteration about- is good, though. <laughs> Thank you, pardon? I said the alliteration is good. <laughs> <laughs> the five Cs, indeed, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's not just about projecting power in that environment through military means, but it's also about uh, uh, projecting influence. And the military has a major part to play in that, as we've seen in Afghanistan and and Iraq in recent years. And one of the biggest questions is whether cyberspace itself can ever be considered uh, an independent war-winning capability. And if you think about after nearly a century of air power, there's still a debate over whether air power can win wars on its own. And this still has not been resolved uh, totally. Um, so uh, it, whilst air power, for example, is an essential component of military force, this is likely to become the case for cyber too. So it's likely to be one of these things that, um, you know, it cuts across, as I said, sort of land, sea, air and space. Um, but whether it will ever be sort of a space you can actually fight in on its own, we don't really know at the moment. Yeah. The other side of it, I mean, you were talking about, uh, you know, a century and we still don't know whether air power does it. Well, the Navy would tell you, of course, it doesn't. Now, the important thing here is that, or the important difference, is that you can develop, let's say, land warfare, air warfare, sea warfare, individually as a country, and you put whatever resources into it, and you can make a contribution to a coalition or whatever you want to do with it. seems to me that what you're talking about, cyberspace, is international. You can't do it by yourself. You can try. Um, and certainly there's, uh, if you think about a traditional, uh, you know, defensive and offensive, um, there are certain ways you can defend yourself. But you're absolutely right. The transnational nature of the Internet, for example, means that you can't just do it on your own. And where countries try, like North Korea, if you, if you have a total lockdown, for example, on your national systems, it, it, it inhibits your ability to, to project influence abroad. And whilst, you know, one of the problems with cyberspace from a military perspective is additionally that it's, in a sense, it's a very big place. It's also a place in which anonymity is the, is the norm rather than the exception. And if you don't know who you're going after and where they are, it makes traditional targeting and military approaches incredibly difficult to implement. Tim Stevens, thanks very much. Listen, we must do a programme, a whole programme on this. Um, yeah, we would do so. OK, thanks a lot, Tim Stevens. Now, I'll tell you what, no... Martin McCauley is waving at me, but we're moving on. Because connected with that, uh, this idea of Internet, is the way the media has changed considerably. And I'm thinking back, let's say, to, I suppose, the Falklands. I mean, also, I suppose, to the First Gulf War. Um, Because at the moment there's a story going around Whitehall that the government would very much like to restrict media movements in Afghanistan during the forthcoming election run-up. No, they wouldn't, they said, but you try getting embedded once the election's, uh, election's called. Mm-hmm. Now, with me, uh, joined us here, is Lieutenant Commander Rupert Nickel. Now, Rupert, you began your time as a minder, I suppose, during the Falklands, yeah? Yes, 82. Uh, you were minded to Brian Hanrahan. Mike Nicholson. And uh, Peter Archer, Press Association, and various others as well. Cool. They're still alive, some of these people as they well. They are. <laughs> uh, that was in Hermes. And in, the, and in Bosnia? Uh, I was in Kosovo, yes. Yeah. And, and Gulf One? And in the Gulf, yes. Yeah, and now a media trainer with NATO exercise That's programs. That's right. Right. You know a little bit about it. This whole thing about, I mean, two points here. One is the international nature of, uh, of, of, 
of media that you can actually pick up a cell phone now or a mobile and do a whole story, film a story indeed. Yes. How does government stop the media getting the story now? It can't, surely. Well, it can't because the media are everywhere. Uh, obviously, the more difficult environments like Afghanistan, it's, it is still more controllable. But basically, they've got to learn to live with it, not trying to stop it. This always seems to take time. In any campaign, there's an, an enormous amount of fuss and pother and people complaining about censorship, and then slowly, slowly it comes right. Mm. And I think that the media coming out of Afghanistan is now very well attuned to what's going on there. But we've had nearly 30 years of learning that, say, from when people couldn't get their stories back from, uh, from the Falklands when you were there? Well, they got their stories back fast enough by radio. It was the TV that couldn't get back. The TV took 16 days to come by boat and plane. By contrast, the radio was immediate. and We, we got stories back to you in the BBC faster than the flash signal system of the Royal Navy. Yeah. Um, John? But there weren't difficulties. I mean, Max Hastings uh, seemed to corner the market at one stage. I remember... He cornered the SAS... Uh, yeah, uh, once you're unsure... It was David, more... David Norris, the Daily Mail uh, correspondent, uh, failed to get any copy out. Well, that depends how hard you push, who you're with, how, what the relationship you create with the people around you is. But is it's it... more difficult now. I mean, I went to Biafra, I went to Vietnam, where individual enterprise uh, was, was quite easy. Nowadays, because of control on security by the military, it's very difficult to be uh, an enterprise. Yes, if you're with the military embedded, but well, you go around embedded. the corner with a satellite telephone and everything's yeah. open. But the, the first people to get into Baghdad were not the embedded people. No, they weren't. They were the independents. Independent. But yes. it's more difficult now to become Same an with independent. Kuwait. Mm. Um, Michael Cogner, the, the, the whole concept of, the, of, of media being under control, I mean, nowadays we can hardly believe that sort of thing, but mm -hmm. five, ten years ago, certainly the 91 Gulf War, where it seemed that half the media, or the main media, was just sit, sitting in Dachan in the media press centre there, and the press, press notice was coming out to the swimming pool, and then they'd do their report, and there'd be a bit of video showing a cruise missile going down a chimney pot. It was all remarkable stuff. Now, it seems to be, seems to be all independent, but it's not, is it? It's not at all. Well, just going back to, um, to after the Falklands War, I mean, my naval experience directly after was, was uh, very much to try and, and rather than to constrain the, the media to, to woo it, I was on um, an admiral staff where we at sea where we were practising this, getting mm. journalists on board. Um, we took uh, a, a, some BBC journalists uh, round Global 86 around the world specifically to try and learn how you you woo them and therefore get them to manage the truth in Who the was way that was where you want that wasn't Guy the audit no, it was Robin Hogg like ah well there you are yeah. I don't like managing yes. the truth as an objective <laughs> for I think well, as long not? as we strategic communication as long as we can <laughs> resist it in Fleet Street we will. It's but, just seduction, isn't it? And that's what embedding should be about, rather than trying to constrain the media, trying to seduce them so that they, they yeah, listen to what, what the young lads say to yeah, them and run with it. Basically, <laughs> what you have to work out is what the enemy knows. In the Falklands, what do the Argentinians know? And not tell them anything more. Yeah. Because if you do the analysis for them, you're making it easy for them. So, basically, it's knowing what the other side is saying and what they know. I had to know what I could well, release to Christopher and to the ITN. One of the ways I did it was I was lucky enough to have a very, very early Inmarsat system, Marisat, and I could actually ring Christopher and say, what have you got today? 
And if he would... Because I wasn't going to get any guidance from the MOD to release anything. So if Christopher said, oh, well, what they're talking about is this, then I knew I could put on my journals to talk about that. Um, And that was my major method of clearance, was two-way dialogue. There's another side of this, and I don't know if you found it, uh, Michael Codner, and, John, when you've been dealing as a journalist, uh, one of the... the, I suppose the characterizations that we came across in, in the Falklands, and this is you know the old and bold talking, was that the media believed the guy in uniform, but he didn't mi- believe the civilian minder. Rupert? I think there was something in that. I mean, I, nobody had ever taught me to say no. I'd never, I'd not had any kind of media training at all, but I was very pro the idea of getting out what's just happened, the first draft of history. But as you said, I'm sorry, I can't tell you that because of operational reasons and also it might endanger life. The media, by and large, believed it. But if a civilian told you, minder said that, they'd say, no, what's he up to? They tended to think that the MOD was on automatic no mode, whereas they did find, not only myself, but other uniformed people, more open and, I think, more willing to talk. Mm. John, more willing to talk. Um, Commonwealth... Uh, it's been a big celebration for the Commonwealth this week, hasn't it? It's been Commonwealth Day. Yes, um, I, mean, I didn't notice that until you mentioned it well, to me. Um, Whatever if, happened if to if the Commonwealth? Gone, if you'd gone to Westminster Abbey, you'd have uh, been part of a great service I need to go to If you'd gone to Marlborough House, you'd have found uh, <laughs> the celebration going on there. The difficulty is that the whole organisation has dissipated a great deal. I mean, I hate to say this as a former governor of the Commonwealth Institute, but... I think the enlargement of African presence has, has uh, been a, a bad influence. I mean, we first of all took on Mozambique, whose origins were really with the Portuguese, yes. not with the British. And now we've taken on Rwanda, where they had 800,000 people killed in genocide. Again, they had no link, except that they liked cricket. Mm. Now, I'm also third of the... But the only side we can beat as well. Listen, I want to move on because we're going to come to the end. Michael, there's one aspect of the, within the Commonwealth that is important, that's peacekeeping. They do provide peacekeepers on a large scale, don't they? Commonwealth nations do, yes. 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 Um, Nigeria, in particular. Nigeria, in particular, yes. Um, and and um, th- that, in- indeed, um, sad to say, is actually a source of income for militaries for a lot of the uh, poorer Commonwealth nations. OK, talking about poorer Commonwealth nations, that's us because the music's running, but you can hardly hear it. That's it for this week. My thanks to uh, Rupert Nickel coming in, Martin McCauley, Michael Codner, and, of course, to John Dickey. We'll be back here at the same time next week on BFBS Radio 2 at 4 o'clock UK time. Well, until then... I'm Christopher Lee. Nothing from Sarah Palin. You'll be relieved to hear. And guess what? Mary? Mary's in the hut. Mm -hmm. Sit with Christopher Lee.